Thank you, everybody. How you doing? Everybody survived the uh, slip sliding away? The, the cold, uh, whatever we had, ice and, ice and stuff, and trapped in the house. Uh, I've got a little, <clears throat> I think it's allergies, you know, it's the cedar, juniper, uh, elm combo is after me, so I apologize for that. <clears throat> and, and also, Tina and I were trapped with each other all week, so, <clears throat> you know. You might see I look a little beat up. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad you're here. So we've been talking about change. And uh, this, the sermon series that we're, we've called this is Change as it changes until it's changed. As we've been looking through the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, today we're going to look at the gentleness of Jesus, what that means. We're looking at how deep character change can happen in a person's life. Contrasting moral reformation with spiritual transformation, there's a difference. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon, The Nature of True Virtue, and he distinguishes between common virtue, which we want people to have, we want people to have common virtue, and true virtue. Common virtue produces people who are honest, generous, and civil. And uh, we seem to be losing that, don't you think? But it's not the same as true virtue that we want to see in the life of a believer. In common virtue, the deepest habit of the hearts are restrained so that people are honest and generous and civil. And in true virtue, the deepest habits of the heart are changed. Are changed. They're transformed. In true virtue, they're not just restrained. In common virtue, we would say uh, it's by the use of fear and pride you can make people honest and generous. In other words... People will be generous, but they're only going to be generous if people will know they're being generous. You know, that's, uh, that's in just, you know, moral reformation. In true virtue, fear and pride, which we all deal with and struggle with, are destroyed at the root. Moral transformation looks at the rules. Uh, spiritual transformation looks at the ruler. Moral transformation controls the heart. Spiritual transformation transforms the heart. So that's what we're looking at. What's the difference between moral, you know, just changing external behavior, and uh, we don't want to just change external behavior. We don't want to just comply. We want to see true transformation from the heart. So the Bible tells us about the fruit of the Spirit. We know from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So those are the things, that, that fruit, that one fruit that has these different, it's not the fruits of the Spirit we've talked about, it's the fruit of the Spirit, this one fruit that has these different manifestations. Sometimes you might, you might naturally be good at one or two of those things. In other words, you might be naturally gentle, or you might naturally have, be very self-controlled, or you might be very naturally patient. But... It's not just one or two of the characteristics. If you just have one or two of those, that's personality traits. And that's good. It's good to have good, yay, for good personality traits, right? But it's not enough because we want to we wanna be like Jesus. So the transformation that we're looking for is a transformation to be like Jesus. So today we're going to talk about gentleness. The Greek word is, is preautes. It means gentleness, humility, and meekness. And when we, when we hear those words, we think weak. 
When we hear meekness, we tend to think weakness. It's not weakness. It's power under control. If you've heard people talk about gentleness before, gentleness <coughs> is power under control. It's like a horse that's been trained. A horse that has been trained is still as powerful as when it was a wild horse. But now that horse has been brought under control. So we would you'd even that term say that that's a gentle horse. He could still be just as dangerous if he chose to be, uh, but he's gentle because he's been brought under control. So that's what we want to see how this works in our life. We want to be gentle. We want to be brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, that's this word, praeautis, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I think that we don't understand gentleness very well. Uh, so we're going to talk today about what is it, how do we get it. As we have a good example of the gentleness of Jesus, we've been looking at, as we've looked at these uh, characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, we've been looking at illustrations or when Jesus was displayed that characteristic. So we're looking today at how Jesus was gentle. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him, but he stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, according to the law of Moses, this was a rare occasion. It was very rare for someone to actually be caught in adultery. According to the law of Moses, you couldn't make any assumptions about someone committing adultery. If you saw them together, that was not cause for adultery. If you saw them come out of a bedroom together, that was not enough. They had to be caught, not even just in bed. You could catch them in bed. And that was not enough. Two witnesses had to catch them in the act of adultery. So you can imagine that was rare that that happened. Now, they're using this to trap Jesus, and Jesus knows it's a trap because it's very obvious when you read this text. It, 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 kind, of, it kind of stands out at you, is that where's the man? You know, if, if, if she's caught in adultery, she was not caught by herself. She was caught with a man. So it's clear to Jesus very off, off, right off the bat that they're just doing this to catch him. So he, they're, trying to, they're trying to get him to decide, will he save the woman and trample the word of God? Will he ignore the word of God? Or will he save the word of God and respect the law and trample the woman? So they're, they're trying to catch him on the horns of a dilemma. 
And so you think about it, this is the same challenge we face every day. We live, as we live the gospel in the public square, we have to determine how we're going to communicate God's word and how, how are we going to relate the word to people and how are we going to be gentle as we do it. How we're going to be truthful, stand true to the word of God, yet not trample people. And it's, 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 a, it's a fine line. What's interesting is that Jesus is gentle and Jesus, we see in how Jesus treats this woman uh, he doesn't treat her with any level of disdain. In other words, he doesn't look down on this woman. It's not obvious. He's not ever condescending. Uh, he's never judging of her uh, in this situation. <clears throat> he understands what they're doing. He understands that they're using her to get to him. And he sees that that's evil, right? He understands that what they're doing is evil and underhanded. They trapped her. Somehow they trapped her. Uh, probably the man who was engaged in trapping her was there. They trapped her to try to trap him. So Jesus is gentle and humble with this woman because <laughs> Jesus knows who he is. He's the sinless Messiah. He's sinless. And he's, he's not worried like she's going to taint him. She's going to mess him up. He's, he's not fearful of that. He, he doesn't act like he's the sin, sinless Messiah. He acts like he's the loving Messiah. So how do you know if you're humble? You know, somebody, they gave somebody an award for being humble, but when he accepted it, they took it away from him. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Are you a conflict avoider or a conflict enjoyer? You can often tell by your response to three things. How do you respond to criticism? How do you respond to advice? And how do you respond to compliments? If you're humble, when criticism comes, you're neither indifferent to it or devastated by it. When criticism comes, you're not, if you're indifferent to it, you're not teachable. You know, because none of us are perfect. And we all have areas where we can receive correction. So if you're, if you're indifferent to criticism, if you should always look at criticism and say, you know, even though it hurts and stings, is there some truth in here that I need to look at? Not to, not to be overly offended by it, not to, not to let it hurt my feelings, but is there something here that's there's some, a seed of truth that I need to listen to? So when criticism comes, if you're not teachable, you don't want to listen, maybe you're, you're too proud. I, you know, I'm never wrong. Or you're devastated by it. Are you devastated by criticism? That means you're, you put too much weight on what people think. I mean, we all have to be concerned about what people think, but you can put too much weight on what people think. Then you want to see how you respond to advice. How do you respond to advice? If you're totally inflexible or absolutely flexible, you're not being humble. In other words, if, if when someone gives you advice and you, you can't take it or you're overly dependent on it, you think, oh, because it's the extremes, I, you know, I need everybody's approval. I'm going to ask everybody, and I've got to, you know, everybody's got to be okay with the, the decision that I make. And that's, I don't know if you know this, but that's virtually impossible to accomplish. You just can't please everybody all the time. You can't, you'll hardly ever get the same response from everybody. So if you need everybody's 
advice. You need everybody's approval to make a decision. You're not humble. You're not being meek. You're not being brave. That's, that's not it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, one of the marks of spiritual pride is a Christian who is absolutely sure of every one of his or her beliefs. If you are sure that your doctrine is perfect and settled, you're always right and you always need to be right. That's pride, not humility. Don't you think when we get to heaven, you know, we're, you know, we're gonna, we think we're going to, you know, be in the, the camp that had everything right and that's probably all, we're all wrong in some level at some area. None of us have everything absolutely perfectly correct. So we need to be humble about that. How do you respond to a compliment? Have you ever, have you ever noticed people who can't take a compliment? They, they can't. If you try to tell them thank you, you try to, you try to give them a compliment, they, they, they deflect it. That's not really humility. Uh, we, we see a couple of characters in the Bible. Saul is one, Gideon's the other who began their ministries very humble. They find Saul hiding. Who Saul, who becomes the king of Israel, he's hiding among the baggage. But one of the first things he does once he becomes king is he makes a statue of himself. So he was, he's looking to bolster up his insecurity. So he's, he's struggling. Uh, how, do you, how do you respond to a compliment? If, you don't want, if it embarrasses you too much, uh, if you avoid it, that's not genuine humility. It's false humility. Other, on the other hand, what if you have to have it? If you have to have compliments, if, if you quit when you don't think you're getting enough compliments, if you quit when you don't think people are noticing you, then that, that, that's not humility either. So we can tell that way. At the end of history, John gets this picture of the throne of God. It's beautiful. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, we sing about this a lot. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So, so John has a vision of heaven. There's the book, the scroll. No one's worthy to open the book. He's weeping. Elder says, stop weeping. Said, there's one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the book. He says, I looked at the throne, and there in the throne was, was a lamb standing as if slain. None of that makes sense. Right? <laughs> a lamb that is slain doesn't stand unless the lamb that was slain, 
has been resurrected. In other words, he's, he's marked. He's, he, he bears the marks of his sacrifice. And he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. So which one is he? Is he the lion or is he the lamb? He's both. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the lamb that was slain. Jesus is the perfect of both. And if we're like Jesus, we will be lambs that are like lions and lions that are like lambs. So how do we get that? John 8, 6. As they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. We all wish we knew what those finger scribbles were. Right? And then he says, he who is with sin among you. So, in, according to the law, the accuser, the person who, had, who said they caught them, the accuser had to be the one who threw the first stone. So the, the accuser, had the, the person who, was, who had brought the accusation, had to had to be the one to cast the first stone. And that person, they themselves, the person who's going to cast the stone, has to be free of sin. Kind of narrows it down. So maybe, maybe what Jesus wrote on the ground, maybe what Jesus wrote on the ground is Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Or... Maybe he wrote Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, it's one of those, 1915. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, that both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priest... And the judges who will be in office in those days, the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, if he's accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he is intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So they who are trying to catch Jesus, they're trying to catch Jesus for not following the law or not following the law themselves. Because there's a process. They would, they would have had to have brought the accused male and female that were caught in the act of adultery, and they would have brought the witnesses, and then they would have gone to court, and it would have been argued before the judges and the priests, and a decision would be made. They wouldn't just drag somebody out in the court of the temple and say, here, we need to stone this woman. And Jesus catches them. He, who they're trying to catch in being true to the law, he's, he doesn't give them a break. Because 
if you notice what I said, the false witness gets the punishment that they wanted to give the person they were accusing. If, if it's determined, if you make an accusation, this will cut back on accusations. If you make an accusation against someone that's going to cause them to be stoned and they're found to be not guilty, then you're guilty of being a false witness and they stone you. So when all of them get reminded of this, Jesus says, well, whoever's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he's writing something on the ground. Maybe he's writing these Bible verses, you know. Maybe he looks over at one of them and writes Peggy Sue in the dirt, you know. I was trying to think of a name that wouldn't offend anybody. It was like, how am I going to come up with a name? That's... So if your name's Peggy Sue, I apologize. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Why the oldest? I don't know if you know this, but I think this is true. Old people have more wisdom. And I don't know if you know how you get wisdom. You get wisdom by doing stupid things. <clears throat> Old people have more wisdom because they've done more stupid things. <laughs> Wayne's choking on that one. Because <laughs> he knows how wise he is now. Think how wise Wayne is now. So <clears throat> my friend Rick... He's, he's like a couple months older than me. And uh, he, so when I, I, you know, I just turned 68 a couple of weeks ago. And so when I turned 68, he, you know, he said, you know, what's it like? I said, I, I text him back, 67-year-olds are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> now I see. Now I see the wisdom that we have. Uh, you just think about when you were younger. Uh, they failed more times themselves. If, you're, if you get older and you don't have more grace, then you've messed up somewhere. When I was younger, I was naive. I was idealistic. I was zealous. I was judging. I was lying. As I got older, I became more graceful and loving. I became more like a Lambie lion. I'm still committed, committed, committed to the truth, <clears throat> but in a loving, lambie way. So, somebody's wrong here, and everybody leaves. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, John chapter 8, verse 10, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Now, he said, I don't condemn you. You know what the word condemn means? A condemned criminal has already been declared guilty. It's done. This is after the judgment. This is after court, after the witnesses have been brought. After everything's been said and done, that's when a person is either determined to be condemned or acquitted. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. He's saying judgment about you 
has not been made. You see, Jesus didn't come to accuse people in their sins, but he came to free us from our sins. Jesus didn't come to excuse us in our sins, but to deliver us from our sins. So he didn't come to either accuse or excuse. He came to set us free. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when Jesus began his ministry, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's why Jesus came. And you know, when Jesus said this, they tried to kill him. At the beginning of his ministry, when Jesus said, and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He said, I'm the one who's came, who has come to set the captives free. They took him from his hometown and tried to throw him off of a cliff. So Jesus doesn't say to this woman, go and sin no more and then I won't condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Salvation comes first and then transformation. How do we have this private conversation between this woman and Jesus? Do you ever think about that? You ever, when you read, really think, how do we have this conversation? She must have become a Christ follower and told her story. He did not condemn her, but he didn't excuse her either. And that's the fine balance that we have to walk because Jesus was about the business of setting her free, not to just find her guilty, not to just condemn her in her sin, but to set her free from her sin. So how do we help people get set free from their sin? John three seventeen: for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to set free those who are captive to sin so they're free from the bondage of sin. So how can we be both biblical and gracious? Because we'll tend to be like the Pharisees. We'll either trample on people or we'll trample on the law. Which, which one are we going to do? We need to be lamby lions and liony lambs. It's, it, it's, a, it's the balance of Christ. It's neither compromise, Jesus never compromised the word in all of this. The only one who stayed true to the word of God in all of this was Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes that are trying to catch him, they're just, they're just trying to throw the word out to get the effect that they want. And Jesus isn't willing to do that. He absolutely stays true to the word of God because he knows that they're violating, they're violating God's word. In 1 Corinthians 5, now the Corinthians, the, the Corinthians were a mess. There's three letters to the Corinthians. We only have two of them, but Paul talks about one of the other letters in the letters to the Corinthians. So there were three letters. We only have two of them. But the problem in the church in Corinth is that there was sin in the church in 1 Corinthians, and they weren't dealing with it. So Paul is writing to them to correct them because they're... And, and Corinth, if you think about what's Corinth like in, in, in Paul's day, in the, in the first century, Corinth was like Vegas. 
What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Very opulent city, very wealthy city. Uh, it was, you know, celebrated. So the church is birthed in Corinth, and it's, it's, in, the, it's in the midst of a culture that's a pagan culture. Before the church, except for the Jews, there was no culture that, 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 that in any way, except for the Jews and the biblical standard that, that valued sexual purity of any kind. I mean, the Romans, sex was just a part of their everyday life in, in their worship of their gods. They, if you were a Roman citizen, you had slaves, you had sex with the slaves. It was, there was, it was, it was a free-for-all. And Corinth was a city that was a free-for-all. So the church is birthed in this, and they're, they're living in a culture that's contrary to the truth. They're, they know what the truth of God is. They know they're not supposed to commit adultery. They know they're not supposed to commit porneo. They're not supposed to commit sexual sins and violate God's promises. They know that, but they're living in the midst of the culture, and they're torn like you are. They're living in the midst of a culture that says everything goes, you love who you love. Really? That doesn't stand up very well under scrutiny. But they're living in the midst of this, so they have a problem. Paul, Paul writes the, the problem in the first century. It's actually reported that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. He says, hey, look at this. You and the church have surpassed the sin of the culture around you. That someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this evil should be removed from your midst. So Paul is saying, you they're bragging about how tolerant they are. Look how tolerant we are. We've got a man in our church who's, you know, who's moved in with his, with his stepmom. But we're letting him you know, continue to serve in the church. We can't play fast and loose with the truth of God's word and get it to fit better into modern culture. God's word is God's word, and our goal is to stand with God's word, not against it, and we don't have to defend it. It's God's word. So they're bragging about how tolerant they are. So, that, so then they go the other way. They, they kick this guy out of the church, and then they won't have anything to do with him. And he repents. And even after he repents, they're like, no, you're not good enough yet. So then Paul has to write another letter. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would not be able to go out and get groceries or gas or buy a car. In other words, any, anything dealing with the world, the world is corrupt and evil and sinful. And if you say, I'm not going to have anything to do with corrupt, evil, sinful people, you're not going to be able to go to work. You got any sinners at work, anybody? I don't even know if I can show up here. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm not going to name names, Tina. But. So he says, 
you know, you'd have to go out of the world. He said, that's not practical. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So, first of all, they kind of have this anything goes mentality. Look how loving we are. We're loving everybody. But, you know, God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. And if we love people and people are in error, we're going to lovingly and gently correct them. If, if there are people in the body of Christ that are in error and we love them, we should gently correct them. But what about this culture we live in? <clears throat> well, we can't judge them. Because you can't see transformation until after you see salvation. So to ask people to transform their mentality before they've transformed their mind by coming to Christ, it's an impossibility. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, listen, yes, you're judging these people in the world. Stop judging the people in the world. That's God's job. Turn them over to God. Let God deal with it. He said, but... If there's sinful people in the church, you need to deal with sinful people in the church. People say, well, you're not supposed to judge. It's true, you're not supposed to judge, but except when you are. I mean, you just have to judge at times. You have to, because that's, don't, don't try to play that. It won't work. You, won't, you, you, know, you want your teenager saying, you can't judge me. Yes, I can. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Right? What's our message to the world then? How do, we, how do we navigate this culture? Because the first century culture was just as bad as what we've got. They were living in this kind of reality where, where the, the world is mixed up and the world doesn't value, I mean, value God's word. They considered the, they considered the Christians atheists. They called the first century Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods. They rejected the, all of the gods of Rome and all the gods of Greece. They rejected that and only believed in Jesus Christ as the one true God. And so they were considered atheists. So what's the message? John 3.16, you might have heard this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Our message to the world is come to Jesus. Our message to the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to tell you, when you come to Christ, that's not the end. You don't just come and say, I believe in Jesus, and that's, that's it, you know. I believe in That's the beginning. That's the first step of surrendering your life to Christ. And I, I want to tell you, if you give your life to Christ, he's going to mess it up. If you give your life to Christ, there's things that he's going to say to you, 
stop that. But he's not going to say that until you come to him and he's going to say, stop that. Did you know, I've been serving the Lord now for a long time. And there are, he has been so gentle and gracious with me. He didn't tell me to stop. He didn't point out everything I was doing wrong in the first week. It had crushed me. He's been so gracious to me that through the years, he'll show me, hey, you have never noticed this, but I want you to see this stinking attitude right here. You're like, oh, man. How, you know, and then, you, then he gives you the strength and the grace to deal with it. But it didn't all come, you know, the day after I got saved. Yes, the Lord started, the Lord immediately started dealing with me about stuff. I just didn't know how much stuff there was going to be. And guess what? I'm not there yet. Are you? I'm not perfect. But I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. God is working in me. That's, and I cherish that. That he hasn't given up on me. That he's going to finish the work that he started. And when I step into eternity, somehow, by his grace, I'm going to step into eternity perfect. Because he did it. So that's our message of the world. Our message of the world is, you need Jesus. But what about all this other stuff? I want to tell you, you need Jesus. Well, I'm an adulterer. You need Jesus. I'm a drunkard. You need Jesus. I'm a swindler. You need Jesus. I'm a pervert. I'm a pervert. You need Jesus. What's the answer? It's Jesus. What does the world need? The world needs Jesus. And we want to try to give the, the world a list of things. Y'all need to stop doing. Y'all need to stop doing all this stuff. They're like, they don't, it's, why would they stop? Because it's not wrong to them. <laughs> but you get Jesus inside of you. And what's the work of the Holy Spirit? The work of the Holy Spirit is going to take what is true about Jesus and what is true about the Father, and he's going to make it real to you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. He's going to take what's God's and give it to you so that it'll be transformative. So, what's the, so the message of the world is, come to Jesus. What's the message of the church? Stop sinning. Change. Submit yourself to God. Let the Lord work on you. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God continue and complete the work that he's... Yield to it. Rejoice in it. Celebrate it. Don't resist the Lord. What's he working on? If, if, you're, if right now in your life there's not an area where the Holy Spirit is, is working on you, you're not paying attention I mean, because if his goal is perfection, to be like Christ, and we would all say, I'm, well, I'm not there yet. Right? So if the goal is to be like Christ, and yet we all admit that we're not there, then he's moving us that way. And he's not going to give up. And it's glorious that he doesn't give up on us. Amen. Let's stand. So, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, today. We live in a complex culture that, that has just taken every truth, the most basic truths that we would not have considered 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and has turned them upside down. They've just distorted the reality and truth. So, Lord, and they, they can't understand it. They don't see it. 
Lord, we want to have the gentleness of Jesus. We want to have power under control. We want to be able to love the world and love them so much that we lay our lives down for them and we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ at all costs that we're willing to tell them God loves you and Jesus died for you. And he cried out, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the gentle. He's the lamb and the lion. He's the lamb and the lion. Lord, help us as we deal with the world to be <laughs> lamby lions and liony lambs, that we would have the character and nature of Christ. Because somehow that, that draws all men to Jesus. Help us, Lord. Free us from judgment. Free us from keeping people in their chains. Lord, you didn't call us to condemn anybody. You sent us with, with a bunch of keys. You gave us the keys of the kingdom. You sent us out with a bunch of keys to go around unlocking people and setting them free from bondage. Lord, help us to be the keepers of the keys and use them to the glory of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. I love you.